Chapter One of Home Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Homes of the Colonists when the first settlers landed on american shores the difficulties in finding or making shelter must have seemed ironical as well as almost unbearable the colonists found a land magnificent with forest trees of every size and variety but they had no sawmills and few saws to cut boards. There was plenty of clay and ample limestone on every side, yet they could have no brick and no mortar. Grand boulders of granite and rock were everywhere, yet there was not a single facility for cutting, drawing, or using stone. These homeless men, so sorely in need of immediate shelter were baffled by pioneer conditions and had to turn to many poor expedients and be satisfied with rude covering in pennsylvania new york massachusetts and possibly other states some reverted to an ancient form of shelter they became cave-dwellers. Caves were dug in the side of a hill and lived in till the settlers could have time to chop down and cut up trees for log houses. Cornelis van Tienhoven, secretary of the province of New Netherland, gives a description of these cave-dwellings and says that the wealthy and principal men in New England lived in this fashion for two reasons. First, not to waste time building. Second, not to discourage poorer laboring people. It is to be doubted whether wealthy men ever lived in them in New England, but Johnson, in his wonder-working providence written in 1645 tells of the occasional use of these smoky homes they were speedily abandoned and no records remain of permanent cave homes in new england in pennsylvania caves were used by newcomers as homes for a long time certainly half a century they generally were formed by digging into the ground about four feet in depth on the banks or low cliffs near the river front the walls were then built up of sods or earth laid on poles or brush thus half only of the chamber was really underground if dug into a side hill the earth formed at least two walls the roofs were layers of tree limbs covered over with sod or bark or rushes and bark 
the chimneys were laid of cobblestone or sticks of wood mortared with clay and grass the settlers were thankful even for these poor shelters and declared that they found them comfortable by sixteen eighty five many families were still living in caves in pennsylvania for the governor's council then ordered the caves to be destroyed and filled in sometimes the settler used the cave for a cellar for the wooden house which he built over it these cave dwellings were perhaps the poorest houses ever known by any americans yet pioneers or poor or degraded folk have used them for homes in america until far more recent days in one of these miserable habitations of earth and sod in the town of rutland massachusetts were passed some of the early years of the girlhood of madame jummel whose beautiful house on washington heights new york still stands to show the contrast that can come in a single life the homes of the indians were copied by the english being ready adaptations of natural and plentiful resources wigwams in the south were plaited rush or grass mats of deerskins pinned on a frame of tree boughs rudely piled into a cover and in the far south of layers of palmetto leaves in the mild climate of the middle and southern states a half-faced camp of the indian form with one open side which served for windows and doors and where the fire was built made a good temporary home in such for a time in his youth lived abraham lincoln bark wigwams were the most easily made of all they could be quickly pinned together on a light frame in sixteen twenty six there were thirty home buildings of europeans on the island of manhattan now new york and all but one of them were of bark though the settler had no sawmills brick kilns or stone cutters he had one noble friend a firm rock to stand upon his broad axe with his axe and his own strong and willing arms he could take a long step in advance in architecture he could build a log cabin these good comfortable and substantial houses have ever been built by american pioneers not only in colonial days but in our western and southern states to the present time a typical one like many now standing and occupied in the mountains of north carolina is here shown round logs were halved together at the corners and roofs with logs or with bark and thatch on poles this made a comfortable shelter especially when the cracks between the logs were chinked 
with wedges of wood and daubed with clay many cabins had at first no chinking or daubing one settler while sleeping was scratched on the head by the sharp teeth of a hungry wolf who thrust his nose into the space between the logs of the cabin doors were hung on wooden hinges or straps of hide a favorite form of a log-house for a settler to build in his first cut-down in the virgin forest was to dig a square trench about two feet deep of dimensions as large as he wished the ground floor of his house then to set upright all around this trench leaving a space for a fireplace window and door a closely placed row of logs all the same length usually fourteen feet long for a single story if there was a loft eighteen feet long the earth was filled in solidly around these logs and kept them firmly upright a horizontal band of puncheons which were split logs smoothed off on the face with the axe was sometimes pinned around within the log walls to keep them from caving in over this was placed a bark roof made of squares of chestnut bark or shingles of overlapping birch bark a bark or log shutter was hung at the window and a bark door hung on with hinges or if very luxurious on leather straps completed the quickly made home this was called rolling up a house and the house was called a puncheon and bark house a rough puncheon floor hewed flat with an axe or adze was truly a luxury one settler's wife pleaded that the house might be rolled up around a splendid flat stump thus she had a good firm table a small platform placed about two feet high alongside one wall and supported at the outer edge with strong posts formed a bedstead sometimes hemlock boughs were the only bed the frontier saying was quote, a hard day's work makes a soft bed unquote. the tired pioneers slept well even on hemlock boughs the chinks of the logs were filled with moss and mud and in the autumn banked up outside with earth for warmth these log houses did not satisfy english men and women they longed to have what roger williams called english houses which were however scarcely different in ground plan a single room on the ground called in many old wills the fire-room had a vast chimney at one end a so-called staircase usually but a narrow ladder led to a sleeping loft above some of those houses were still made of whole logs but with clapboard nailed over the chinks and cracks others were of a lighter frame covered with clapboards 
or in delaware with boards pinned on perpendicularly soon this house was doubled in size and comfort by having a room on either side of the chimney each settlement often followed in general outline as well as detail the houses to which the owners had become accustomed in europe with of course such variations as were necessary from the new surroundings new climate and new limitations new york was settled by the dutch and therefore naturally the first permanent houses were dutch in shape such as may be seen in holland to-day in the large towns in new netherland the houses were certainly very pretty as all visitors stated who wrote accounts at that day madame knights visited new york in seventeen o four and wrote of the houses i will give her own words in her own spelling and grammar which were not very good though she was the teacher of benjamin franklin and the friend of cotton mather Quote, the buildings are brick generally very stately and high the bricks in some of the houses are of diverse colors and laid in checkers being glazed look very agreeable the inside of the houses is neat to admiration the wooden work for only the walls are plastered and the summers and gist are plain and kept very white scoured as so is all the partitions if made of boards unquote. the summers and gists were the heavy timbers of the frame the summer pieces and joists the summer piece was the large middle beam in the middle from end to end of the ceiling the joists were cross beams these were not covered with plaster as nowadays but showed in every ceiling and in old houses are sometimes set so curiously and fitted so ingeniously that they are always an entertaining study another traveller says that new york houses had patterns of colored bricks set in the front and also bore the date of the building the governor's house at albany had two black brick hearts dutch houses were set close to the sidewalk with the gable end to the street and had the roof notched like steps corbel roof was the name and these ends were often of brick while the rest of the walls were of wood the roofs were high in proportion to the side of the walls and hence steep they were surmounted usually in holland fashion with weather vanes in the shape of horses lions geese sloops or fish a rooster was a favorite dutch weather vane there were metal gutters sticking out from every roof almost to the middle of the street this was most annoying to passers-by in rainy weather who were deluged with water from the roofs the cellar windows had small loopholes with shutters the windows were always small some had only sliding shutters 
others had but two panes or quarrels of glass as they were called which were only six or eight inches square the front doors were cut across horizontally in the middle into two parts and in early days were hung on leather hinges instead of iron in the upper half of the door were two round bull's-eyes of heavy greenish glass which let faint rays of light enter the hall the door opened with a latch and often had also a knocker every house had a porch or stoop flanked with benches which were constantly occupied in the summer time and every evening in city and village alike an incessant visiting was kept up from stoop to stoop the dutch farmhouses were a single straight story with two more stories in the high incurving roof they had doors and stoops like the town-houses and all the windows had heavy board shutters the cellar and the garret were the most useful rooms in the house they were storerooms for all kinds of substantial food in the cellar were great bins of apples potatoes turnips beets and parsnips there were hogs heads of corned beef barrels of salt pork tubs of ham being salted in brine tonicans of salt shad and mackerel firkins of butter kegs of pig's feet tubs of souse kilderkins of lard on a long swing shelf were tumblers of spiced fruits and rolishes head cheese and strings of sausages all dutch delicacies in strong racks were barrels of cider and vinegar and often of beer many contained barrels of rum and a pipe of madeira what a storehouse of plenty and thrift what an emblem of dutch character in the attic by the chimney was the smoke-house filled with hams bacon smoked beef and sausages in virginia and maryland where people did not gather into towns but built their houses farther apart there were at first few sawmills and the houses were universally built of undressed logs nails were costly as were all articles manufactured of iron hence many houses were built without iron wooden pins and pegs were driven in holes cut to receive them hinges were of leather the shingles on the roof were sometimes pinned or were held in place by weight timbers the doors had latches with strings hanging outside by pulling in the string within the doors the house was securely locked this form of latch was used in all the colonies when persons were leaving houses they sometimes set them on fire in order to gather up the nails from the ashes to prevent this destruction of buildings the government of virginia gave to each planter who was leaving his house as many nails as the house was estimated to have in its frame 
provided the owner would not burn down the house some years later when boards could be readily obtained the favorite dwelling-place in the south was a frame building with a great stone or log and clay chimney at either end the house was usually set on sills resting on the ground the partitions were sometimes covered with a thick layer of mud which dried into a sort of plaster and was whitewashed the roof was covered with cypress shingles hammond wrote of these houses in sixteen fifty six in his lee and rachel pleasant in their building and contrived delightful the rooms large daubed and white lined glazed and flowered and if not glazed windows shutters made pretty and convenient when prosperity and wealth came through the speedily profitable crops of tobacco the houses improved the home lot or yard of the southern planters showed a pleasant group of buildings which would seem the most cheerful home of the colonies only that all dearly earned homes are cheerful to their owners there was not only the spacious mansion-house for the planter with its pleasant porch but separate buildings in which were a kitchen cabins for the negro servants and the overseer a stable barn coach-house hen-house smoke-house dove-cot and milk-room in many yards a tall pole with a toy house atop was erected in this bird-house bee martins built their nests and by bravely disconcerting the attacks of hawks and crows and noisily notifying the family and servants of the approach of the enemy thus served as a guardian for the domestic poultry whose home stood close under this protection there was seldom an ice-house the only means for the preservation of meats in hot weather was by water constantly pouring into and through a box-house erected over the spring that flowed near the house sometimes a brew-house was also found in the yard for making home-brewed beer and a tool-house for storing tools and farm implements some farms had a cider-mill but this was not in the house-yard often there was a spinning-house where servants could spin flax and wool this usually had one room containing a hand-loom on which coarse bagging could be woven and homespun for the use of the negroes a very beautiful example of a splendid and comfortable southern mansion such as was built by wealthy planters in the middle of the eighteenth century has been preserved for us at mount vernon the home of george washington mount vernon was not so fine nor so costly a house as many others built earlier in the century such as lower brandon two centuries and a half old and upper brandon the homes of the harrisons westover the home of the birds 
Shirley built in 1650 the home of the Carters. Sabin Hall, another Carter home, is still standing on the Rappahannock with its various and many quarters and outbuildings and is a splendid example of colonial architecture. As the traveler came north from Virginia through Pennsylvania, the Jerseys, and Delaware, the negro cabins and detached kitchen disappear, and many of the houses were of stone and mortar. A clay oven stood by each house. In the cities, stone and brick were much used, and by 1700 nearly all Philadelphia houses had balconies running the entire length of the second story. The stoop before the door was universal. For half a century nearly all New England houses were cottages. Many had thatched roofs. Seaside towns set aside for public use certain reedy lots between salt marsh and low water mark where thatch could be freely cut. The catted chimneys were of logs plastered with clay, or plated, that is, made of reeds and mortar, and as wood and hay were stacked in the streets, all the early towns suffered much from fires, and soon laws were passed forbidding the building of these unsafe chimneys. As bricks were imported and made, and stone was quarried, there was certainly no need to use such danger-filled materials fire wardens were appointed who peered around in all the kitchens hunting for what they called foul chimney hearts and they ordered flag roofs and wooden chimneys to be removed and replaced with stone or brick ones in boston every housekeeper had to own a fire ladder and ladder and buckets were kept in the church Salem kept its fire buckets and hooked poles in the townhouse. Soon, in all towns, each family owned fire buckets made of heavy leather and marked with the owner's name or initials. The entire town constituted the fire company, and the method of using the fire buckets was this. As soon as an alarm of fire was given by shouts or bell ringing, everyone ran at once toward the scene of the fire. All who owned buckets carried them, and if any person was delayed even for a few minutes, he flung his fire buckets from the window into the street, where someone in the running crowd seized them and carried them on. On reaching the fire, a double line called lanes of persons was made from the fire to the river or pond or a well. A very good representation of these lanes is given in this fireman's certificate of the year 1800. The buckets filled with water were passed from hand to hand, up one line of persons to the fire, while the empty ones went down the other line boys were stationed on the dry lane thus a constant supply of water was carried to the fire if any person attempted to pass through the line or hinder the work he promptly got a bucketful or two of water poured over him
when the fire was over the fire warden took charge of the buckets some hours later the owners appeared each picked out his own buckets from the pile carried them home and hung them up by the front door ready to be seized again for use as the next alarm of fire many of these old fire buckets are still preserved and deservedly are cherished heirlooms for they represent the dignity and importance due a householding ancestor they were a valued possession at the time of their use and a costly one being made of the best leather they were often painted not only with the name of the owner but with the family mottoes crest or appropriate inscriptions sometimes in latin the leather hand buckets of the donison family of boston are here shown those of the quincy family bear the legend impavidi flammarium those of the oliver family friend and public in these fire buckets were often kept tightly rolled strong canvas bags in which valuables could be thrust and carried from the burning building the first fire engine made in this country was for the town of boston and was made about sixteen fifty by joseph jenks the famous old iron worker in lynn it was doubtless very simple in shape as were its successors until well into this century the first fire engine used in brooklyn new york is here shown it was made in seventeen eighty five by jacob boom relays of men at both handles worked the clumsy pump the water supply for this engine was still only through the lanes of fire buckets except in rare cases by the year sixteen seventy wooden chimneys and log houses of the plymouth and bay colonies were replaced by more sightly houses of two stories which were frequently built with the second story jutting out a foot or two over the first and sometimes with the attic story still further extending over the second story a few of these are still standing the white ellery house at gloucester massachusetts in seventeen o seven is here shown this overhang is popularly supposed to have been built for the purpose of affording a convenient shooting place from which to repel the indians this is however an historic fable the overhanging second story was a common form of building in england in the time of queen elizabeth and the massachusetts and rhode island settlers simply and naturally copied their old homes the roofs of many of these new houses were steep and were shingled with hand-riven shingles the walls between the rooms were of clay mixed with chopped straw sometimes the walls were whitened with a wash made of powdered clam-shells the ground floors were occasionally of earth but puncheon floors were common in the better houses the well-smoothed timbers were sanded in careful designs with cleanly beach sand in sixteen seventy six the royal commissioners wrote of boston that the streets were crooked 
and the houses usually wooden with a few brick and stone it is a favorite tradition of brick houses in all the colonies that the brick for them was brought from england as excellent brick was made here i cannot believe all these tales that are told occasionally a house such as the splendid warner mansion still standing in portsmouth new hampshire is proved to be of imported brick by the bills which are still existing for the purchase and transportation of the brick a later form of many houses was two stories or two stories and a half in front with a peak roof that sloped down nearly to the ground in the back over an l covering the kitchen added in the shape known as a lean-to or as was called by country folk the linter this sloping roof gave the one element of unconscious picturesqueness which redeemed the prosaic ugliness of these bare-walled houses many lean-to houses are still standing in new england the boardman hill house built at north saugus massachusetts two centuries and a half ago and the two houses of lean-to form the birthplaces of president john adams and of president john quincy adams are typical examples the next roof form built from early colonial days and popular a century ago was what was known as the gambrel roof this resembled on two sides the mansard roof of france in the seventeenth century but was also gabled at two ends the gambrel roof had a certain grace of outline especially when joined with lean-tos and other additions the house partly built in sixteen thirty six in dedham massachusetts by my far-away grandfather and known as the fairbanks house is the oldest gambrel roofed house now standing it is still occupied by one of his descendants in the eighth generation the rear view of it here given shows the picturesqueness of roof outlines and the quaintness which comes simply from variety the front of the main building with its eight windows all of different sizes and set at different heights shows equal diversity within the boards and the wall paneling vary from two to twenty-five inches in width the windows of the first houses had oil paper to admit light a colonist rode back to england to a friend who was soon to follow bring oil paper for your windows the minister higginson sent promptly in sixteen twenty nine for glass for windows this glass was set in the windows with nails the sashes were often narrow and oblong of diamond-shaped panes set in lead and opening up and down the middle on hinges long after the large towns and cities had glass windows frontier settlements still had heavy wooden shutters they were a safer protection against indian assault as well as cheaper it is asserted that in the province of kennebec which is now the state of maine there was not even as late as seventeen forty five a house that had a square of glass in it
oil paper was used until this century in pioneer houses for windows wherever it was difficult to transport glass few of the early houses in new england were painted or colored as it was called either without or within painters do not appear in any of the early lists of workmen a salem citizen just previous to the revolution had the woodwork of one of the rooms of his house painted one of a group of friends discussing this extravagance a few days later said well archer has set us a fine example of expense he has laid one of his rooms in oil this sentence shows both the wording and ideas of the times there was one external and suggestive adjunct of the earliest pioneers home which was found in nearly all the settlements which were built in the midst of threatening indians some strong houses were always surrounded by a stockade or palisado of heavy well-fitted logs which thus formed a garrison or neighborhood resort in time of danger in the valley of virginia each settlement was formed of houses set in a square connected from end to end of the outside walls by stockades with gates thus forming a close front on the james river on manhattan island were stockades the whole town plot of milford connecticut was enclosed in sixteen forty five and the indians taunted the settlers by shouting out white men all same like pigs at one time in massachusetts twenty towns proposed an all-surrounding palisade the progress and condition of our settlements can be traced in our fences as indians disappeared or succumbed the solid row of pals gave place to a log fence which served well to keep out depredatory animals when danger from indians or wild animals entirely disappeared boards were still not over plenty and the strength of the owner could not be overspent on unnecessary fencing then came the double rail fence two rails held in place one above the other at each joining by four cross sticks it was a boundary and would keep in cattle it was said that every fence should be horse-high bull-proof and pig-tight then came stone walls showing a thorough clearing and taming of the land the succeeding half-high stone wall a foot or two high with a single rail on top showed that stones were not as plentiful in the fields as in early days the snake fence or virginia fence so common in southern states utilized the second growth of forest trees the split rail fence four or five rails in height was set at intervals with posts pierced with holes to hold the ends of the rails these were used to some extent in the east but our western states were fenced throughout with rails split by sturdy pioneer rail splitters among them young abraham lincoln 
board fences showed the day of the sawmill and its plentiful supply the wire fences of today equally prove the decrease of our forests and our wood and the growth of our mineral supplies and manufacture of metal thus even our fences might be called historical monuments a few of the old block houses or garrison houses the defensible houses which were surrounded by stockades are still standing the most interesting are the old garrison at east haverhill massachusetts built in sixteen seventy it has walls of solid oak and brick a foot and a half thick the saltonstall house at ipswich built in sixteen thirty three craddock old fort in medford massachusetts built in sixteen thirty four of brick made on the spot an old fort in york maine and the whitefield garrison house built in sixteen thirty nine at guilford connecticut the one at newburyport is the most picturesque and beautiful of them all as social life in boston took on a little aspect of court life in the circle gathered round the royal governors the pride of the wealthy found expression in handsome and stately houses these were copied and added to by men of wealth and social standing in other towns the province house built in sixteen seventy nine the frank land house built in seventeen thirty five and the hancock house all in boston the shirley house in roxbury the wentworth mansion in new hampshire are good examples they were dignified and simple in form and have borne the test of centuries they wear well they never erred in over ornamentation being scant of interior decoration save in two or three principal rooms and the hall and staircase the panel step ends and soffits the graceful newels and balusters of those old staircases hold sway as models to this day the same taste which made the staircase the centre of decoration within made the front door the sole point of ornamentation without and equal beauty is there focused worthy of study and reproduction many of the old-time front doors are with their fine panels graceful leaded side windows elaborate and pretty fan lights and slight but appropriate carving the prettiest leaded windows i ever saw in an american home were in a thereby glorified hen-house they had been taken from the discarded front door of a remodeled old falmouth house the hens and their owner were not of antiquarian tastes and relinquished the windows for a machine-made sash more suited to their plebeian tastes and occupations many colonial doors had door latches or knobs of heavy brass nearly all had a knocker of wrought iron or polished brass a cheerful ornament that ever seems to resound a welcome to the visitor as well as a notification to the visited the knocker from the john hancock house in boston and that from the winslow house in marshfield are here shown 
both are now in the custody of the bostonian society and may be seen at the old state house in boston the latter was given to the society by dr oliver wendell holmes the king hooper house still standing in danvers massachusetts closely resembled the hancock house this house built by robert hooper in seventeen fifty four was for a time the refuge of the royal governor of massachusetts governor gage and hence is sometimes called the general gage's headquarters when the Minutemen marched past the house to Lexington on April 18, 1775, they stripped the lead from the gatepost. King Hooper angrily denounced them, and a Minuteman fired at him as he entered the house. The bullet passed through the panel of the door, and the rent may still be seen hence the house has often been called the house of the front door with the bullet hole the present owner and occupier of the house francis peabody esq has appropriately named it the linens from the stately linen trees that grace its gardens and lawns in riding through those portions of our states that were the early settled colonies it is pleasant to note where any old houses are still standing or where the sites of early colonial houses are known the good taste usually shown by the colonists in the places chosen to build their houses they dearly loved a sightly location an old writer said quote, my consati is such I had rather not to build a mansion or house than to build one without a good prospect in it, to it, and from it." Unquote. In Virginia the houses were set on the river slope, where every passing boat might see them. The New England colonists painfully climbed long, tedious hills that they might have homes from whence could be had a beautiful view and this was for the double reason as the old writer said that in their new homes they might both see and be seen End of chapter one